I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, True and Real Stories from the Fringes of Classical Music. All right, so uh, today, Scott, we're going back into the classroom a little bit, a, uh, a, sort, of, um, a sort of heady conversation with uh, Dr. Garrett Schumann. He uh, is a, uh, a Michigan-based uh, music theorist, composer. Um, he's taught at uh, uh, colleges and universities around the country. Uh, what we dig into today is um, his new research project, Apex, the performance series um, uh, based on uh, that work, the Apex Contemporary Performance, um, how uh, the way that we teach and think about music theory specifically plays a role in um, into the composers uh, and the artists who were left out of the conversation, the idea that uh, traditional quote-unquote classical music is much more diverse than um, than we have always thought of it. So really a great conversation with him. Um, but Scott, uh, something I wanted to touch on with you before we get into that interview is the way things are taught um, incorrectly or or how it uh, or how education often just does not include a number of things I, I think we've brought it up uh, before uh, at this point uh, we, we have both uh, been watching the show Watchmen and right. and how you know the Tulsa race riots were something that were just left out of the of the conversation for you as far as teaching you know for me um, when I think back to uh, my high school uh, history courses you know the Vietnam War certainly not the Korean war, you know, just dark spots in in my education um, based on who writes the books and, right. and, and what stories they uh, that they want to put out there. Are there, a, are there really uh, glaring dark spots in, in your education? Yeah, yeah, a lot. Um, it seems like in the history classes, you know, we talk about uh, the history in the black communities that's missed and Vietnam and Korean wars. It did seem a lot like everything was focused around when the Constitution was written and signed. Sure. You know, that sure. was that seemed to be the, the heaviest bits. And remember that I was in high school in the 80s, you know, so... Um, we didn't have the Internet and all these means of getting information in quickly right. or uh, the textbooks in quickly. So, you know, who knows how dated our stuff that we were using was. I have no idea. You had to go all the way into the encyclopedia, huh? We still had printed encyclopedias, <laughs> man. Yeah. Yeah. Go over and look it up. What about on the, um, like, uh, well, I, I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Did you take any music appreciation or any classical music courses in college? Music appreciation, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you uh, did you learn about black composers in that in that Some. course? Oh, did Some. you? Chevalier de Saint George was in there. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. See, I was an adult the first time uh, I heard his name, and you know when you uh, when you listen to uh, Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint George, if you didn't know, you will probably just say, "Oh, this is some Haydn or right. or, or maybe s some Mozart." But right. you know, a, a black composer of many eras past who wrote music um, just as big C classical as all of the other ones. Huge shout out to Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint Georges, you know, the first uh, black composer or the first black person um, to lead a regiment uh, during the French Revolution, the only mm -hmm. all black regiment, um, a, a master uh, fencer, you know, an incredible violinist, and also a composer. So, a uh, a triple, maybe even a quadruple threat that uh, we, we don't always learn about. You know, a, uh, a composer that um, I have been uh, listening to and was exposed to not too long ago uh, was a black composer named Clarence Cameron White. 
and um, and thanks to Rachel Barton Pine, a lot of his music is you know uh, going around more with uh, the recordings she did. Um, not just a black composer, but a Tennessee composer. Mm. Uh, I understand. So from my home state, and um, and and listen listening to sort of the the bluesiness and the uh, jazziness. It's, you know, he has a tune called the uh, the Levy Dance that I always love seeing on my playlist. It you know just one of the another one of those many names that. Um, has been left out of the history books uh, traditionally. What about on the uh, Scott on the radio and uh, production side? Are there other things that uh, you didn't learn in your formal education that you just apply every day? I mean, certainly technology has changed over the years, but maybe just some some common practice that uh, they left out of the curriculum. I think that things have changed, though, that they are including more coursework that deals with emotional intelligence. Mm. So you can learn how to run the equipment to to do an interview, but actually conducting it in a thoughtful way is different. Talk, talk, talk more about that, how, how, how the education pl- plays into that. Well, there are some people that believe that if you want to be a news reporter, you can be taught to come up with questions to get the answer for your story the answer that you want no the 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 you can you can conduct your interview in a news way where there is no emotion you're trying to get the facts ah, okay I so see. like maybe political or something like that but in the work that you and I do here and primarily you when you're conducting these interviews there is a certain level of emotional intelligence and listening that needs to happen in order in order for that conversation to be interesting for somebody outside of it to hear so uh, there are people that believe that that can't be taught that you know that 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 is a feel that is a, something inherent and you know what you're making me think about is you know we we have always uh talked about uh code switching as it applies to our job really using our language mm-hmm. and breaking down the tradition of what the classical host sounds like on the radio mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if if that's a conversation that's happening in the news world or if if uh, news people are beginning to relax a little bit uh lower their shoulders a little bit Probably the, you know, the people who also have the opinion shows in addition to their mm. their interviewing thing, that, that that's probably happening there. Well, with you having the formal background, I'm wondering if you could ask me a question in a news way and then ask me that same question in a more in a more uh, relaxed or, or non-news <laughs> way. About music? Or anything. Okay. Um, in a news way, I would say something like... Uh, Garrett, from looking at your programming, I see that you favor uh, composers like Dmitry Shostakovich. Uh, you like uh, some contemporary composers that have uh, passed away more recently. Talk, uh, tell me a little bit about why those speak to you. Okay, and then I suppose my answer, if you, if I were on a news show, would be. Um, more history-based, you mm-hmm. know, talk about how uh, classical music is alive and well, and it's very important to me to unearth some of that more contemporary history so that we understand that, you know, aesthetics and all of that stuff has changed over the centuries, but they're equally valid. Right. So I guess that would be my news, right. my, uh, on action news answer. Right. Now, if I was going to ask you uh, a similar question, but I want you to open up and emote and all that sort of thing, I would say something like, um, Garrett, last night you and I were talking about the Kwanzaa special, and you singled out the fact that that piece by Florence Price really made you feel even more connected to it in the context of Kwanzaa. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the realization and how you came to it. Okay, so I see what you mean, because now that question has me thinking more about my uh 
my uh, personal life and, mm-hmm. and the relationship that, you know, Garrett McQueen 1.0 has with classical music and black classical music. Okay, that's interesting. So do you... Um, the loads of interpersonal communication things that go on too, you know, yeah. just being able to deal with the other people that you have to work with in order to make the finished product in whatever business that you're in. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that everybody's getting that sort of... Um, help or in, or classwork yeah, experience. Yeah. yeah, really interesting conversation. Um, well, so, uh, yeah, as uh, Garrett Schumann will uh, go into the way that uh, music history, uh, music theory, composition, the way all of those things have been taught, um, have been taught in a way that leaves out uh, big chunks of the repertoire. So uh, what he's dedicated himself to is unearthing um, you know, the diversity of classical music um, in days and even centuries past, mm-hmm. um, celebrating the contemporary sounds and aesthetics of, of classical music today. Um, so yeah, really great uh, conversation with Garrett Schumann that uh, we'll jump into now. Garrett Schumann, a, a pleasure to have you here on Triloquy. You have a really great name, and you spell it correctly, even. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, always a conversation starter in music schools. Oh, your last name, okay. Yeah. Oh, I was, oh, I was oh talking yeah, about we do your spell the name. Garrett the right way, too. Yes, yeah, two R's, two T's, right that is the appropriate yes. spelling. <laughs> but your your last name as well, what, what sort of uh, what sorts of conversations do you get into concerning uh, your your surname? I mean, obviously, are you related to Robert and Clara, I'm sure, is one. Yeah, it, I remember once in my undergrad, this master's student, the first thing he asked me was like, are you the great-grandson of Robert Schumann? And I was like, there's a lot more to me than that, and I don't even know. Although I do have tinnitus, so maybe I am. Uh, maybe there's a connection there. <laughs> well, we actually aren't going to talk much um, about the Schumanns today. You have an organization, Apex Contemporary Performance, for us to dive into. Um, but first, I wanted to uh, get a little bit of your story. Uh, so I met you uh, in the Detroit area, but I didn't know you were uh, from from Texas. You've, you've traveled a bit of everywhere so far in your career. Yeah, so I was born in Houston, and then we lived in Dallas until fourth grade, and we moved to Connecticut for uh, middle school and high school for me. And then I did my undergrad at Rice University back in Houston. And then when we met, I was in grad school at Michigan. I can't remember what phase of grad school, but uh, I've been in Michigan since 2010. And uh, it's great. my wife works for the University of Michigan. We live in the town next to Ann Arbor called Ypsilanti, which mm-hmm. is great because we don't have to deal with stuck-up Ann Arbor people. So okay, we okay. Love it there. <laughs> uh, but then you also teach uh, down in Boone, North Carolina, right? Well, I I taught there for one year last year, so I've had a lot of different teaching jobs. Um, at four schools, I've taught at Appalachian State just for uh, eighteen nineteen and Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Madonna University in Livonia, Michigan, and then also the University of Michigan. I was a faculty member there for one year. So I'm living a prototypical adjunct experience, um, teaching at a lot of different places, teaching a lot of different classes. And what's been great is I've gotten to work with a lot of different students with different uh, backgrounds and values and uh, concerns and experiences. So that's been really influential on me, even though it does not pay well and is really stressful. Yeah. And, and you described it as prototypical. And that's actually uh, what I was going to ask. If, if from your perspective, that's sort of the typical lifestyle from a composer, a music theorist with this uh, doctorate in music, if that's the way the life uh, typically looks. Oh, definitely. I mean, there are a few people I know from my schooling who have tenure track jobs, but they are definitely in the minority. There's so many more people who, like me, have been adjuncting for, you know, five or more years. And it, that's you just kind of get used to it as the norm. Um, but the sort of get a doctorate and then get a tenure track job and work at one school for 40 years, that's becoming increasingly rare. Hmm. Hmm. Do, do you find that um, 
you know, your specific interests within music. Um, you know, we're going to talk about uh, the work you do in contemporary music. Do you think that uh, gets in the way? I mean, are, are schools interested in, in, uh, in new conversations surrounding classical music in the same way that you are? It depends on the school, and it depends on the program. I'll just tell you with the context of the jobs that I've had, most of them are pretty receptive. Part of that is because as an adjunct, they kind of just want a warm body in the room to teach the class. But um, in at least two of the jobs I've had, I had very explicit conversations with my superiors about designing a curriculum that was more inclusive uh, and also involved repertoire that I like to use that's non-traditional, like a lot of popular music and that sort of thing. Um, and specifically, when I started teaching at Western Michigan University in 2016, my bosses there were like, you have to include music by women composers, which was something I was already doing, but it felt really great to have them, you know, give me the institutional green light to really dive into that. Um, and so... Some of the places I've taught have been really open to that, but then other places are much more traditionally minded and want to stick with a more conservative curriculum. That's really just Madonna University. Everywhere else I've taught has been really open. And, and what have these classes been? Like, what, what is the name of the class these students take from you? Oh, so I've taught just about everything that that you can teach if you have a background in composition theory. I've taught electronic music, composition lessons, aural skills, all the way up the, the uh, sequence, and written theory all the way up the sequence. Um, orchestration as well. So whenever I teach those classes, because I've been kind of nomadic in my career, I sort of stick to the same playbook, which is including a variety of genres where appropriate, and also, you know, using it as an opportunity to continue my research of composers of color, women composers, composers who just aren't as well known, as long as it's demonstrative of the topics that we're dealing with. And um, it really depends depends on the course, but I try to to include that approach in every course that I teach across that spectrum. What, what, what do you think uh, what, what do you think fuels that? Because you know when I, when I think back specifically uh, to my written theory classes, you know it's very much based in the in the rules the, the counterpoint rules of, of Bach and how they apply to late Baroque and, and, and classical music. But uh, when you're talking about bring, bringing new music into those spaces, you know what, what's what's the goal because it, it, it seems like you know the art of learning music theory and counterpoint and all that is, is based in tradition itself. I think it comes from a place of trying to make the topics more relatable to the students. So I remember the first class I ever taught when I was a graduate student, it was oral skills. And I was sticking with the repertoire and the materials that I was given, which was mostly piano music. But then there was a percussionist who was like, I don't care about this, there's no percussion. Or a violinist who was like, this is piano, like, can we use something with strings? So even from that perspective, it was like, I have to find new examples that they'll connect with because it represents their instrument. And then when I started teaching um, oral schools for the musical theater program at the University of Michigan, which has different curricular goals, but they have a much more diverse student body. And so then it was like, well, I have to include music by African-American musicians because I have like five African-American students who would bring it up if I didn't do that. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of comes from this approach of making the sort of demystifying the topics. So like if I can show how five different composers from the late 18th century approached sonata form, it becomes less of a monolith for my students. It's more like, oh, this was a practice that composers had at the time. And yeah, there's some rules, but people varied their approaches in different ways. And um, it's, it's kind of always come from this point of demystification and then relatability. And fortunately, that's lined up well with... Um, some of my other interests, like I do a lot of research of heavy metal music, and so it's students love it if I can show something 
happening in like a classical piece or or a Broadway song when I was teaching the musical theater kids and then show the exact same thing happening in a metal song. And I th I've always found and gotten feedback confirming this, at least from some students, like showing an idea appearing in a lot of different places makes it a little bit easier well, at least shows it from different angles that makes it a little bit easier to grasp but also shows adds meaning to it instead of focusing on you have to find meaning in this one example or this one composer's application of the idea showing that the idea is spread across a lot of different kinds of music i i've always found that that works i read that um you know you mentioned heavy metal i've read that you have actually been uh recognized for the uh, the relationship that uh, that that you dive into between you know music theory and and heavy metal, who who are, uh, who are I want to learn more about that. Was there an award involved, or what was it? Uh, well, I've I've been published in Music Theory Spectrum um, uh, for that research, and I and, and that's a magazine. Or, I'm sorry. It's a journal, okay. an academic journal. And then um, I presented at international conferences on heavy metal, and I've been asked to do guest presentations on it. I've never won an award, but it's kind of like a thing that people associate with me. Like, oh, Garrett, he's the heavy metal guy. <laughs> so, do you have any... Uh... Even with my compositions, because it really influences my, my own music. And so, like, uh, I recently wrote a piece for this fabulous voice and saxophone duo and they were like garrett we need you to write a heavy metal romp we know you can do this create this piece for us so it's like part of my brand i guess heavy metal romp i like how that sounds mm. <laughs> do you have any uh do you have any examples of you know and i have something uh in my mind that uh uh, that, that I'll revisit a little later, but do you have any examples of uh, music theory, sonata form, one of these, you know, traditionally classical motifs um, applying in, in, in heavy metal? Is there a go-to for you that you provide to kids or, or, or anyone curious? Well, there's some interesting counterpoint things that happen in heavy metal that you can associate uh, with traditional classical music. In terms of structure, not sonata form, but there's some interesting versions of binary form that happen in heavy metal, where like the song will end with a whole section of completely new material, and that's very similar to like a Baroque binary form, at least in concept. Um, often what I use heavy metal for is more free-flowing form examples. So um, because it's a genre that values virtuosity in the performance and composition, there are a lot of interesting structures that happen if you if you look in the right places. And so it's a good challenge for students to try to figure out what's going on. And then there are really amazing examples of things with rhythm and meter that we don't see a lot in classical music. Um, and so it's, it's a great resource for that. Um, but, and then there's some harmonic things too. Like I remember when I was teaching oral skills at Michigan, there was a, there's a Megadeth song that has an augmented sixth chord in it. And so um, I like showed that when we were talking about listening for augmented sixth chords. And there's some interesting things with sets and the octatonic scale that happen in particularly the music of Slayer and Meshuggah that I've used for that. And it's always fun when even 12-tone, there's some heavy metal music that's like intentionally using the 12-tone technique. So particularly set theory in 12-tone, you're seeing your students start to glaze over their eyes looking at, you know, second Viennese school music. And then it's like, wait, let's listen to this machine song and you can see a set happening as well. Yeah, when they hear um, someone shredding, that, you know. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. When I was at Guitar Center recently, I saw that there's a uh, a transcription for electric guitar of the Paganini Etudes, mm -hmm. you know, so the they're, they're marketing to it, you know, and there's a lot of bands out there, like Garrett was saying, that are playing uh, interesting chords that are rooted in all this classical theory, and you'd never know it, yeah, because it's got a metal distortion pedal on it. Well, there's a there's a German band, Accept, which is one of the like yeah old 
they're from the 70s, and their guitarist Wolf Hoffman, I think is his name, like, has this whole shtick where he does metal arrangements of, like, Beethoven and stuff. Right. I honestly think it's horrible. <laughs> but there's a, but it's evidence of the strong connection between classical music and heavy metal. And, like, the first book, academic book on heavy metal that Robert Walzer wrote in the 80s, he's a musicologist. I think he taught at the University of Minnesota, actually. Um, after talking about heavy metals, uh, what it owes to African-American music as a form of rock and roll and that sort of thing, he talks about the practice of heavy metal musicians and how it overlaps classical music. And so it's it's inextricable, really. Yeah. Well, uh, but before we get into um, your your nonprofit, I, I had a question about um, your BMI uh, affiliation. So for folks who uh, don't know what that is as a uh, as an organization, could you describe describe that first of all? Yeah. So BMI is one of the two big performance royalty organizations that composers sign on to. And basically the idea is if you have pieces performed in venues that are licensed to BMI, you get a check for royalties. And then with ASCAP being the other organization, I suppose, right? ASCAP is the other big one. There's also one called CSAC, S-E-S-A-C, which I think is bigger in Canada. Mm. Yeah, um, and but ASCAP and BMI are the biggest. Yeah, because in in my undergraduate, uh, uh, I took one music business course, and uh, the big point that uh, the the instructor um, what was making was that we really need to fear these organizations because uh, she, she she described BMI specifically as having uh, foot soldiers that just go into every corner of the world, every corner of the internet, looking for an opportunity to take something down because the rights aren't there you know there was a, uh, a a popular club um along like the college strip where i went down at the university of memphis and the whole organ and, and the whole business um was shut down because a bmi person came in heard some music checked if they were uh registered or had paid their dues or whatever they hadn't and sued them for so much that um they they had to get rid of the business and uh, i and, and i'm just curious if that is uh the way you see the organization from the inside these folks just you know working to to dismantle um media and, and content for the sake of money i don't but I've had a pretty limited experience with them. I mean, I, I'll say that the reason I signed up with BMI is because they sent a representative to Michigan when I was a graduate student. And I was like, cool, I'll do that. And I've gotten some checks over the years, but I don't I, I don't have a ton of performances every year. And many of them are not in licensed venues, so I wouldn't get royalties for them anyway. Um, I think with popular music, they're much more active, and that's what you describe as really unfortunate sounding. Kind of sounds like Gilbert and Sullivan going around, sending henchmen around England to like make sure nobody was performing their music and like beating people up and those stories of early copyright and, and enforcement. I mean, that sounds unfortunate, because I've always taken the approach that I want people to be able to hear my music, and if it's in a BMI venue, that's great. I'll get a little bit of money, but the most important thing is getting it out there. And I think there's so many other forces in the way people consume music, like Spotify and YouTube and Apple Music, that do such a bad job of getting creators compensation that I I think BMI does a better job, but the system for how we reward artistic creators in this country is so bad in, mm. in, in so many complicated ways that I feel like it's, it's a larger issue. BMI is probably contributing that in some ways, but there are a lot of other bad actors. And um, really, until we get to a point as a country where we want to recognize the public good that arts offer and contribute through public funding to the arts, I don't think we'll really have like a good system. So I'm not surprised that BMI isn't great. I mean, everyone complains. This is like composer shop talk is like, oh, I'm with ASCAP. They didn't give me money for this. This sucks. I'm with BMI. They didn't give me money for this. This sucks. Like nobody's really happy about it. It's like health insurance or something, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, and, and hopefully they won't be after us now, Scott. Now that I've said <laughs> something, but 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 and you, Scott, you deal with um, gathering the rights and all that stuff for, for right. what we. I mean, do you have any reaction to what you're hearing uh, uh, Garrett say? There's just even more hoops now than there ever has been, wow. especially when you add the video component to it, because mm. there's a different set of rights when the music is synced to video and they call that sync rights. So you have to make sure that that mm -hmm. is taken care of. Yeah, and yeah. So there's just a, now, like you said, I'm all for artists getting paid for their of work course. and their performances. I do think that the process could be a little easier. Yeah. And know? it seems like a, a, a really, a, a nuanced conversation to have because, you know, the conversation of, um, compensating artists, but also, you know, the idea of getting the music out there, you know, cause you can't right. pay your rent with exposure as, as we say all the time, but yeah. there, but there is something to, to unearthing, um, you know, the, the, the art of, uh, of individuals and, 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 you know, Garrett, as, as I was preparing for this, um, um, uh, interview, just looking at uh, the website for um, Apex Contemporary Concert, there were composers there that, that I hadn't heard of, you know, so, you know, just the, the, the balance between, you know, honoring artists, but also just honoring, you know, their art and making sure that it's spread and that people know about it. Yeah. I think maybe BMI is representative of some of the more pernicious like cultural elements and music which comes down to like i need to get as much as i can for myself and there's not as much this is not related to bmi but just in general not as much interest in let's build things for others let's create an infrastructure that is sustainable instead of you know i gotta make sure i get mine and that's something with composers I know and stuff, we, there's a lot of inequality. There are composers who can make a living uh, through commissions and that sort of things, but many of us don't. I won't probably ever pay my mortgage with performance royalties, maybe one month of my mortgage <laughs> with performance royalties that I get. But um, if we had a more, I don't know, self-sustaining or cooperative collectivist attitude, we could probably build a structure where people are getting their music out there and also getting compensated in a better way. Well, and, and it seems that, you know, in your own way, you've done just that with Apex Contemporary Concert. How did you come up uh, with that name? Does Apex have a, have a, a specific meaning or, or purpose to it? So my partner in Apex contemporary performance, Kevin Fitzgerald, our music director, he had the name when he approached me about, with the idea. And sort of the reason for the name was he had the logo idea, so we wanted that ligature A. Mm -hmm. And then also he, we wanted to have high standards for the repertoire that we program and, and the quality of the concerts that we produce. And so the idea of Apex being symbolic is just about we're trying to do our best with everything that we do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, a conversation that Scott and I have all the time is, you know, knowing uh, an individual understanding and knowing their role and their uh, purpose uh, within a space. And, uh, and and how that can kind of uh, be shaken up in its own way. You know, um, I, I'm just going to be frank with with this organization. Um, it's headed by uh, two white men. And then I get on mm -hmm. the, the website and I see uh, nothing but but people of color. Um, does that reflect the work or is this just, you know, putting on a, a good face for people who who happen to come across the website and learn about your, your organization? Well, first of all, I think that's a very fair criticism. It's reflective of stuff we're doing this year um, specifically. And so we have, since our first concert, we've had a lot of programming focusing on composers of African descent because it's related to this research project that we're doing as well. Um, you know, we just had a board meeting uh, a couple of days ago where we were talking about the need to have different leadership and finding people with different identities. Um, fortunately, with the research project that we're doing, the Apex Anthology, we have an advisory board that is all people of color, because with that particular project, we know that we need to include other voices. But, 
yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that I can't really, I'm not going to make an excuse for. We just need to do better with that. I mean, it's very localized to this year in terms of the programming that we're doing. Although we've always tried to program with an eye to rarely performed and underrepresented composers with respect to the our state, Michigan, where we where we do all of our performances. And that's a it's a really fair observation and something that is a big concern for us. Well, I mean, and, and the fact that you're having that conversation and just ag- acknowledging that truth, I think, is so much uh, more and so much better than a lot of the you know organizations are doing, uh, to be quite frank. Does uh, d- does the organization have a, a grounding uh, philosophy or, or, or set of values? What, what is this nonprofit um, in, a, in a sentence or in a word? So our mission is to share the music of rarely performed and underrepresented 20th and 21st century composers from around the world with audiences across Michigan. And how do you So it's really about whose oh, music is not happening in Michigan and how can we make it happen? Yeah, and, and yeah, that that Michigan aspect uh, seems to be a, a very important part of it. So are are you finding that there are artists and and composers that are underrepresented in Michigan specifically, or, or, or how does how does the Michiganness of of Apex uh, tie into it? Well, from a contemporary music standpoint, the other presenters who do contemporary music are pretty aesthetically focused on minimalism and post minimalism. Mm. So they're so like a rarely composed, rarely performed composer in Michigan would be like a modernist or something like that. But then also we have the traditional uh, issues of exclusion, like programming being biased towards white men. And so if we do programs with uh, uh, with women composers or composers of color, regardless of style, that's also bringing in voices that aren't being heard. And then there's also a geographical concentration of where contemporary music is happening in Michigan, focused in Southeast Michigan. So we've also, and we're based in Southeast Michigan, but we've performed in other places as well. We sort of have a master plan of building a statewide infrastructure for contemporary music that represents everyone in the state who's creating it and also who's not being performed in the state from elsewhere yeah what what's your what's your process of um of locating some of these underrepresented artists because again as i mentioned i learned about two composers uh just visiting your website what what's the process of of unearthing some of these uh more obscure names uh, some of it comes from the performers that we work with so we we we're not an ensemble we will hire people locally to perform programming that we come up with or we will present people from our area or from other places who have a program that they've already come up with and so sometimes we just go on youtube or twitter and look for composers or we think about composers we know if we're looking for a specific instrumentation or length of a piece, or maybe we have something more thematic in mind, or also people will come to us and be like, we have this program, it's all art songs by women composers. We don't know any of the composers, but it works with what we're doing. And so we learn as much from the people we work with as I guess we teach people by looking up composers. Hmm, that's interesting. And, and you know, you're using that word composer. I sit on the board uh, of the American Composers Forum, and uh, something that we've been talking about is, you know, obviously, you know, how we are beginning uh, to redefine the phrase classical music, but also the word composer and, and what is is a composer. Is is that a, is that a word that you use uh, purposefully, or or is the uh, do, do you do with artists who don't necessarily follow Follow the 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 classical uh, track. What, what what is that conversation like within Apex? We're definitely we've definitely presented a range of artistic voices, and I I mean we I use the term composer because being a composer is just what comes to mind mm-hmm. first. But there, we've we've worked with people who would define that in a lot of different ways. Um, like we're having the um, composer and 
toy pianist, electronic musician, Elizabeth A. Baker come in March. And she has a very different approach to her creative identity than anyone else that we've worked with. And, and we're interested in her music um, because it's very different from some of this, from what we've done before. Uh, so we're, we're open to people who have a lot of different approaches and would probably define that word in different ways. So, uh, and, and uh, I'm, I've been thinking about how I want to ask this question, you know, when I, again, when going back to the, the Michigan centric nature of, of apex and how geography plays into these conversations, you know, Michigan is home to, you know, one of the most famous orchestras in the country, if not the world. I've I've uh, played with them. Um, and one of the frustrations that I've seen uh, with a lot of the with folks who do work like yours as it relates to the big orchestras and the big classical music organizations is that they just don't want to push or pull or or, or change uh, what they're doing. Um, ha- have you managed to uh, have collaborations with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra or, or other really big organizations around the country? Only tangentially. So the DSO hosts this annual Contemporary Music Marathon concert every September that's run by a different organization in Detroit called New Music Detroit. And it happens at um, the Maxim Fisher Music Center. So we performed at that a couple times. And so because of that, have overlapped with DSO administrators and that sort of thing. But no, we haven't. I mean, we're a very small organization. We've, we're in the middle of our fifth season. We've done a lot of events. We've done 25 events, which is way too many. But we just kind of do what we are able to do. Um, even if it's maybe more than we should. Um, those The kinds of partnerships along those lines that we have have mostly been with universities across the state. So like last year, we did a big residency at Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which was great because there's really no other reason that we would have ever performed there. Um, and if we go back, it'll probably be under similar circumstances. And so it was wonderful to have the chance to bring programming that wouldn't necessarily happen in Mount Pleasant, Michigan to Mount Pleasant, Michigan, which is a much closer to what we're trying to do with the organization than become like an annex of the DSO um, because they do a ton of their own programming and um, they don't, even though for one of the, major orchestras in the states they have interesting programming that's relatively diverse which doesn't say very much in reality but um we we don't we don't consider ourselves in competition with them we admire what they do but it's we consider it pretty different from what we do but what is what I'm I'm curious about your your personal feelings as far as you know pushing forward um, these these underrepresented and relatively um, obscure composers and artists you know do large organizations in your personal opinion um, not have a role in in that work it seems like um, all of that work can't be done by just the small organizations like yours oh of course they do um, but I think that there is a disconnect with organizations that focus on traditional classical music. So I'm talking common practice period, the big names, uh, 1600s to early 1900s. I think there's they have a disconnect. This is just speculative. Of course, But yeah. there's a disconnect in like what they feel like their responsibilities are in terms of representing composers with different identities relative to contemporary music, because there's kind of this myth that, yes, with living composers or composers who are active in the 20th century, we can't deny that there are a lot of women, we can't deny that there are people of color, but that's not the responsibility of organizations that focus on the 19th century or the 18th century, which is a myth because the 18th and 19th century also had a lot of women, also had a lot of people of color who were writing music that is stylistically similar to what like an orchestra or opera company would do even longer before the 18th century. I'm just oversimplifying. Sure. Yeah. And, and so I think that, um, I, I think like a lot of orchestras that, that I 
have seen, you know, they're like, oh, we'll do a piece by a woman composer, but it's a living woman composer. Or we'll do, like the Met is doing the um, Terrence Blanchard opera, the first opera by an African-American composer that they've done. Well, he's right. alive, but, you know, Harry Lawrence Freeman was writing operas in the 1890s, and who's African-American? Um, so there's sort of this misunderstanding, and I think traditional folk, traditionally focused classical music institutions, which would be not just orchestras and opera companies, but music departments at colleges too, that like classical music with a capital C, that history, we understand it, it was all white men. Well, that's not actually true. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect where diverse programming has become the responsibility for contemporary focused organizations and not the responsibility of traditionally focused work organizations. Yeah, that is, and, that's, that's a very interesting point and a very important point that it's not just about, again, the new music, but this, the traditional canon itself is very diverse, but it's just, it hasn't been tapped and explored. Yeah. And, and if you look at the history There have, like, the first woman to publish classical music, Maddalena Casolana, she was Italian, uh, 16th century, she publishes a book of madrigals, and in the front matter, talks about, I am, re I am publishing this music because there are too many men who think women can't write music. And then 300 years later, Hans von Bülow is quoted saying that there will never be a woman composer and that's like mm -hmm. obviously wrong but you can see it's cyclical and recursive this idea that at a time the the, the group of people who are practicing what we generally label classical music is very pluralistic just like now but then that diversity gets erased and then there's another generation that's much more pluralistic than what we think, but then that gets erased over and over and over again. So we're at this point where we can't deny that in the present there are people with a lot of identities doing composed music, concert music, art music, whatever you're doing, but because we've adopted a mythological understanding of the history, it's like, well, in the 19th century, you know, it was only men, and that's just not true. I'm wondering if... Uh, what sort of things you're hearing anecdotally after your concerts? Is there a thirst for these unknown compositions? What What are you experiencing after the fact? Well, I think what's helpful to us is that stylistically the music that we program is generally really foreign because it's contemporary music it's not traditional sounding even though there are living composers who write in a in a sort of neo-romantic way we tend not to program that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and so because of the foreignness of the aesthetic if it's a composer that these people have the the audience members haven't heard that's not as important it's more like oh that piece was so different or I'd never heard anything like that before in terms of the sounds that were coming out of the instruments or electronics or voices on stage. And so that it was a prepared solo violin piece by Anahita Abasi, who's an Iranian American composer. Like the fact that she's a woman of color is not as big a talking point as like that piece was really different. Mm. sounding. Do you think it should be a big talking point, the, the identity behind the music? I think it's, it's important insofar as there should be equitable opportunities for people regardless of their background to be able to create and have what they create be performed and heard by people. But I don't I don't really know if it matters in terms of the like audiences experience with the music because the piece is going to connect with them or it's not going to connect with them. And that has to do with the performance that has to do with the sounds that doesn't have, I mean, it has something to do with the person behind the piece, but I don't know. Um, I'm not as concerned about like people reading and like with Anahita Abasi's piece, 
I haven't talked to her about that piece. I don't know if there's something about her experience as an Iranian-American woman that went into that piece, but I wouldn't be comfortable speculating. And I'm, people are the audience is happy to 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 go on a journey imagining what that could be, but it's more important of like how it sounds in the room during the concert. And then um, as long as people have the opportunity to create what they want to create and get it heard, regardless of their identity, you know, that's as much as it matters to me. Yeah, because, you know, Scott, we have this conversation a lot. Does it, Do we need to say that, you know, music by an Afro-American composer or mm-hmm. a woman composer? And I don't know, from from my perspective, the, uh, the idea of non-dead white men uh who wrote classical music i i I think that is still is still not common knowledge that uh you know as garrett has has talked about here it's not common knowledge that the the canon is indeed very diverse but we just haven't always explored a lot of it that's why i always bring identity into it how how, how, i mean what what are your thoughts on it after hearing what garrett had to say well it's it's evolving i think um obviously whenever i've had a person of color a composer of color i mentioned that but i feel like as soon as i say a woman composer's name you're going to know it's a woman sure sure so i don't know if we necessarily need that identifier but if they if they identify differently you know if they use a a they them pronoun or something then you go that direction right but but if i say the name jermaine taillefer you know, somebody might not necessarily know that that is a woman composer. From Cecile France, Chaminade. You know? it, it, the, yeah. the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a French uh, 18th century composer, Hyacinthe Jadin, who's a man, but has a name that would make you think that mm. maybe uh, he's not a man. So we didn't identify as male. Yeah. Um, so it can be complicated, like in the context of a radio show or something like it's hard to know how to present that and that sort of thing. Yeah. Who have you found that you're really excited about? What what music uh, really surprised you? Oh, that's a such a big question. I'll say that so in the last year, I've been really focusing on this this research project, uh, which is, I'm in New York City right now, actually uh, working with the manuscripts of Harry Lawrence Freeman, like, so, so they can be used for future instructional materials and that sort of thing. And I didn't know, I didn't learn anything about the history of African-American composers, like, at all when I was in music school. And, and you have a doctorate. Yeah, I mean it's a doctorate in composition. Some but still, people but might still, think that you know, that's not as serious, but... <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm well. It's it's enormously troubling, and and I listening back to some episodes of your show, like when Melanie Dodson was on here, and she, um, she went to Appalachian State. She did, yeah. And she was like, I wanted to program women composers, but I didn't know who any of them were. Um, and so similar to her, like, I was not really taught about that. And so it's been a big focal point for me in the last 12 months is learning more about that. And I fortunately, because of um, relationships I have with amazing uh, scholars and artists like Naomi Andre, the musicologist at the University of Michigan, who's been really uh, influential in the research we're doing with Apex, and Anthony R. Green, the composer-pianist who also helps lead Castle of Our Skins, the amazing concert presenter in Boston. Like, They've given me a lot of guidance and resources and I've been able to go to places like Columbia University to work with Harry Lawrence Freeman's manuscripts and then also the Library of Congress to look at music by these uh, free black composers who were active before the Civil War. That's like not something I ever knew about Mm -hmm. and it's something that has always challenged me as a composer in America is like what is American classical music because it's something that's kind of classical music is something we sort of imported from Europe in a lot of ways and even like a major orchestra like the DSO it's almost like European aristocratic cosplay in a way (laughs) yeah and so like if I'm (laughs) trying to create as an American composer, like, what is the tradition that I can sort of look at or, or be inspired by? And it, and it just 
makes me, it's so exciting to like look at this piece by Francis Johnson from 1820. And it's like to imagine what he went through as a free black man in Philadelphia who had a huge musical career that I knew nothing about. Um, and so it's those moments, particularly in the last year, that it's not contemporary music um, at all, but it it's very new to me. And um, has totally changed the way I think about the history of classical music and just as like my identity as an American composer, but also like when I teach and stuff, it's like we never talk about American music until the 20th century. Like, why do we do that? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of it before and it's different than what's happening in Europe, although a lot of it was not that different. Um, and so that journey has been the most exciting thing for me of late. You know, tides are changing. And, you know, when, when you talk about all of the things that you didn't learn in music school, when I acknowledge the things that I did not learn, you know, you are in one of those positions to teach, uh, you know, the, the next generation uh, about all of this forgotten um, and overlooked history. You know, the the I'll use the word excuse, the excuse that I feel a lot of organizations make, whether it's, you know, orchestras. Um, organizations like ours even, is that we just don't know. We, we, we don't know where to find all of this information and all of these names. Is the, um, is the Apex um, anthology and, and the other research you're doing, is this something that's available uh, to the general public? It will be. Not yet, because we're still like very much in the early stages of putting it together. But the idea is that it will be a free online resource really targeted at people in teaching positions like mine who are well-meaning but are overworked and don't have time to do the research that I'm doing and our organization is is doing. And, and um, like Anthony R. Green, for example, has helped enormously with scores that he's accessed and stuff. And we are focusing intentionally on pieces that are don't have modern additions and have not been recorded commercially as an idea of just opening up the world of, of musical examples that are will be accessible to instructors. Because um, there are other efforts kind of along these lines. There, um, A lot of people are thinking about this now, like why are music theory curricula so focused on a limited, the music of a limited number of white male, mostly German composers. Um, there were recent presentations at the Society of Music Theory conference about this. There's a really recent New Music Box article about all of this. And we don't want to compete with any of these other initiatives or anything like that. We just want to help make it easier for instructors to have a more representative curriculum, at least within like what that curriculum is defined now. I think a, a fair critique of the anthology is like not trying to be transformative. It's just trying to take the structure of the traditional music theory curriculum and make it possible to teach that with more representative examples. And there are a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which is having a focus makes the project easier to do. But because of the identity of our organization's leadership, my identity, it's not really our, we don't feel like it's our job to define like what a black music theory curriculum would be. That's not my thing to decide. But what I can do is be like, you can teach this curriculum with a much more representative repertoire. And then that challenges why was this repertoire not included in the first place? And when you start to follow that, then you realize that there's a broader structure, hierarchies of power and inequality that shaped this, that are actually super dark. And it sort of leads people to want to redesign it. Yeah, we're, that's what we're hoping. Just re really acknowledging that the present is not the present is on purpose. It, it wasn't just yes. by happenstance. Um, it, it, well, if if people want to keep up with this work or or uh, have access uh, to this anthology when it's all done, how 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 can they do that? So we have an email address. 
anthology.aepexcp at gmail.org. And if you go on our website, there's a bunch of information about the anthology and then also that email address. And we have some materials that are like in the pilot stage that we've sent to people at a few different schools across the country. And so if you want to be involved with that, just email um, that address, or you can find me on Twitter at G-A-R-R-T, and I'll help guide you there. Um, we're sort of at the point where we're collecting a lot of materials and then shaping it into what we'll be doing for a while, shaping it into, like, clips of scores, audio recordings, things that, like, an instructor could easily put into the PowerPoints that they already have or whatever resources they already have. Because a big untold part of this, although we sort of touched on it before, is with the labor situation facing music school faculty, uh, when you don't have job security, when you're getting paid really poorly, when you have to teach a ton of classes, like more than one person's normal workload, of course you don't have time to track down a piece by Vicente Lusitano, who's the first composer of African descent that we know ever published music. Like, it's hard to, like, grade and, and, and lesson plan and all of that. And so the hope with this is that it will make it easier to for instructors to cross those barriers. And then their students will benefit because they'll be ex exposed to a more pluralistic traditional history of classical music. Wow, wow. As I said, you're doing the good work. <laughs> and, so, and for folks um, in, in Michigan uh, who want to catch some of the uh, Apex uh, Contemporary Performance uh, concerts, how can they learn uh, more about that? So our website, uh, aepexcontemporary.org, has all of that. We have a Twitter account, at aepexcp, and also a Facebook page. Um, and we have a mailing list that you can sign up for on our website uh, to keep abreast of everything we're doing. Um, and we have three programs coming up for the rest of the year with guest artists who are um, all African-American, amazing musicians, uh, the composer pianist Anthony R. Green, uh, Elizabeth A. Baker, who I mentioned before, mm -hmm. and then a, a fabulous pianist, Leah Claiborne, who was actually in my remedial aural skills class when I was teaching at Michigan. And she has done fascinating research on similar topics related to pedagogical piano music and the inclusion of music by African-American composers into that. Um, but she's also an amazing pianist, too. So that's sort of the rest of our season. And you're always people are always welcome to travel out to Michigan mm -hmm. to hear what we're doing. Of course. Well, uh, Garrett Schumann, Dr. Garrett Schumann, thanks so much for taking the time with the, by, by speaking with us and uh, telling us more about your projects. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm a huge fan of this show, so it's really an honor to be part of it and keep up the good work. Oh, thank you so thanks, much. Thanks, Garrett. So what did you take away from the conversation with Garrett Schumann? What did you personally bring out of it? Because I noticed you sitting up and taking notice a couple times. I mean, there were so many different parts of the conversation that um, that perked my attention. The first, um, you know, we, we we dropped into the conversation of BMI a mm -hmm. little bit and, mm -hmm. and, and rights and all that sort of thing. And he has... Um, I don't know. It, it's It's difficult for me to accept the idea of paying an artist in exposure it's so you know it's so important to validate uh, what what they're doing in, in the correct way but um his feelings about it being important for the music and just the acknowledgement and and the awareness uh of the art to be out there was really important to me and again when i when i go to the uh website uh, apexcontemporary.org and see some of the performances that are coming up by these composers that i i hadn't heard of um that, that that's that's huge to me and, and that's something i'm gonna think a little bit more about maybe something that we should be thinking about as we uh start to put together this uh, triloquy series here in uh, right. and the twin cities one of the things that 
I was started to think about as Garrett was talking was um, something that I've talked about on the air before. You know, we hear Beethoven, Mozart, Haydn, all these sorts of things. But, you know, just like today, you have very talented musicians who might be in a neighborhood band mm -hmm. or they might play solo every once in a while when they want to. And maybe they jotted down something here and there. I wonder who the next name is who in a hundred years we're going to say this was discovered in 2019, you know, in a stack yeah. of whatever papers or whatever. I wonder what that's going to be. Probably that... maybe something that that is com very common to us, you know, because mm. uh, and, and not to get too deep into the you know music history conversation, but um, folks weren't really listening much to Bach until Felix Mendelssohn came exactly. along, and, or like the Beethoven Violin Concerto that all the violinists learned. You know, Mendelssohn revived uh, that. A piece of music. So I guess, I guess you never know. Fritz Kreisler brought back Vivaldi. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, and well, good for you, Fritz and, Kreisler. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a, a name, uh, a, a name that I hadn't always known that I know now is uh, Celso uh, Machado. And mm. you know that name now as well, right? Right. Uh, an Afro-Brazilian composer who you've been in touch with concerning rights. I and have all to that call sort him back today. Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, Well, his music uh, is actually going to be featured on the next opus of Triloquy. So the newest um, addition to the uh, C24 team, uh, Melissa Dundas, uh, joins uh, Scott and myself in Studio B. Yeah. Uh, and we just kind of sit around and have a conversation about being a class classical radio host, her journey here. I think it's really laid back, um, really fun. I'm wishing I had one of those cupcakes right now. And if you want to, <laughs> if you want to hear Garrett call us pedantic, just oh, tune in. You just remember, I just remember you went, this is so pedantic at one point. That was great. Okay, well then I'll, I'll be tuned in as well. Um, send all of your feedback <laughs> to uh, triloquy at americanpublicmedia.org. Um, Subscribe and rate us while you're at it. It helps. And you want to go ahead and shout out the, I don't know if we've ever shouted out the social medias. Should we do that? Yours or ours? Uh, I mean, the, the Triloquy one or our personal ones? If you want to find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, um, look okay. us up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on Instagram, I'm L. Scott Blankenship. And on the Twitters, it's S underscore B underscore Triloquy. On all social media platforms, I'm me. There's only one Garrett McQueen. Two R's, two T's, as Garrett Schumann spells his name correctly. We talked about that a little bit. Yep. Um, handle McQueen of the night. Anyway, uh, Happy New Year again. You know, we're still in early January. So, um, yep. so, yeah, feeling good for 2020. And always glad to have you here listening to Triloquy. We'll see you next time.